0: Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we will be discussing books five and six of of Homer's Iliad with a focus on three things. First, we will discuss Diomedes' Aristia, which is to say his moment of excellence in which he attempts to transcend human limitations. Second, we will look at Diomedes' discussion with the Trojan Glaucus and see what it means for the generations of men to be like generations of leaves. Finally, we will close with thoughts on Hector's understanding of nobility and prudence. Uh, I would like to open with a brief statement on what one could call the plot of the Iliad. I'm drawing from Seth Benardetti's work when I speak about this. Um, This is in no way a comprehensive engagement with his thought. That's something I plan to do later, sort of in the way that I had uh, organized and approaches to Homer lecture on Louise Cowan's um, essay, "Epic as Cosmopoiesis. But to put um, his thesis as simply as possible, and to sort of extract it from some of the complications that he presents, we could say this. Benardetti frames the plot of the Iliad in terms of what motivates the warriors to fight. In some sense, all three motives are always present, but each one finds a period in the book where it is more greatly emphasized or expressed. Diomedes plays a crucial role in bringing about a shift in emphasis. To speak roughly, uh, you could say books one through four represent a period of the book where the recovery of Helen is meaningfully spoken of as a reason for fighting. Um, And to some extent, you see the fight between Menelaus and Paris as a major expression of this. Um, But in book five, Diomedes attacks Aphrodite, the goddess of love and this seems to initiate a different core reason for fighting, namely undying fame or glory. Later, after Patroclus is killed in Book 16, revenge becomes the third core motivation for fighting. Now, with that said, let's turn to Book 5. Book 5 begins with Athena granting Diomedes, quote, strength and daring. The fighter would shine forth and tower over the Argives and win himself glory he is given a simile that compares him to the star that flames at harvest, which anticipates a simile describing Achilles as he initially charges at Hector in book 22. Um, Diomedes first encounters on his Aristia two sons of a priest of Hephaestus who are said to have been, quote, trained for every foray. This little detail would seem to assert that technical skill is no match for Diomedes' God-given strength. Strikingly, It is said of Diomedes by Homer, quote, which side was the fighter on? You could not tell. Did he rampage now with the Trojans or the Argives? Down the plain, he stormed like a stream and spat a routing winter torrent sweeping away the dikes. The tight piled dikes can't hold it back any longer. Banks shoring the blooming vineyards cannot curb its course a flash flood bursts as the rains from Zeus pour down their power, acre on acre, the well-dug work of farmers crumbling under it. So under Tidides' force, the Trojan columns panic now, no standing their ground, massed, packed as they were, end quote. Diomedes seems to be killing in such an indiscriminate manner that it isn't possible to tell what side he is on. Why would he do this? On one hand, we might grant that the adrenaline from battle blurs our perception. On the other hand, perhaps Diomedes is principally concerned with his undying fame in this moment. That is, at least right now, the concern for him isn't to win the war for the Achaeans, it is to distinguish himself as an individual, to set himself apart as superior to others. He becomes, as the quotation a moment ago suggested, like a winter torrent casting aside dykes. In other words, a force of nature that is indifferent to what it casts aside. Also, just as he easily overcame well-trained men earlier, now the simile has an overcoming human artifice in the form of the dykes. Um, in some sense, then, book five features a kind of contest between God-sent strength and technique. The divine outperformed technology up to this point. But now, suddenly, just as Diomedes seemed unstoppable, the Trojan Pandarus strikes him with an arrow in the right shoulder, giving <clears throat> getting Techne on or human artifice back into the game. This god, this man who is given God who received God given strength is now reeling. Now he's bleeding. Diomedes calls on Athena for more assistance she immediately delivers. She seems to place strength in him, um, and especially his father's strength with him, and lifts the mist from his eyes so that he can see where the gods are on the battlefield. And while he may strike Aphrodite, he's told that he ought to avoid fighting with the other gods. I found the mist removal striking, that he has to have the mist removed Means that the ordinary state that all human beings find themselves in is in a mist covered one. In other words, that there is a screen that stands between humans and the world that prevents them from seeing it clearly. And worst of all, that no one even knows that the screen is there until it is removed. Without knowing that this mist is there, there can't even be an incentive to remove it. Thankfully, Homer plays the part of Athena to us. He reveals the ordinary condition that man finds himself in, and so perhaps sets us in motion to someday remove this screen for ourselves. However, this may be, Diomedes is restored and returns to the fray. The Trojan Aeneas searches out Pandarus and asks him to assist him. Pandarus laments how ineffectual his bow has been at killing Achaeans. Nevertheless, he joins Aeneas, and they drive straight at Diomedes and his faithful driver. It's a very hard name for me to pronounce. A spear from Pandarus catches Diomedes' shield. Diomedes throws his spear, and Athena helps drive it directly into Pandarus' nose. Aeneas drops down to defend uh, Pandarus' corpse, and Diomedes, quote, hefted a boulder in his hands. A tremendous feat. No two men could hoist it, weak as men are now. I love when Homer mentions that line uh this this boulder that no two men could hoist. Um a time is coming when men will be able to lift a rock in the future that no two men can lift now. And it crushes Aeneas's hip in such a way that death almost takes him. Uh, and then there'd be no Aeneid. But in order to save this great literary work, Aphrodite aims to whisk him away from the fighting. But before she can do this, Diomedes stabs her at her soft, limp wrist. A couple of questions emerge: Why does Diomedes stab her in the wrist as opposed to driving his spear into a more more fatal area? Could he be a little bit sheepish about fully bringing the fight to the gods? We might also ask, why was Aphrodite the first god that was attacked? If Benardetti is right about the different the different motivations for fighting, then the first phase of the book, which had to do with recovering Helen, perhaps this is over. The next phase, the, undying, the quest for undying fame, is ushered in through an attack that, the goddess of, that drives the goddess of love away from the battlefield. Since Aphrodite was not able to save her son, uh, Apollo joins the field. And in superhuman fashion, Diomedes drives at Aeneas' dying body four times and is rebuffed by Apollo each time. Apollo screams at Diomedes, telling him that he is not of the same breed as the gods. And Diomedes steps back enough that Apollo is able to take up Aeneas' nearly lifeless body. We will discuss Apollo in much greater detail later when he stops Patroclus' own Aristias short. But to give a brief comment, it seems like we, we can say that Apollo is a kind of god of limits who enters the battlefield when humans attempt to do things that would alter fate, or that that attempt to transcend human limits. Apollo is related to the sun. The sun, or any light for that matter, makes it possible for us to perceive where one object ends and another begins. Sight distinguishes where the limit of one being ends and another begins. Apollo demarcates the limit of human action, and in this way sets up the definition of what a human being is. Um, At the very least, not a god, Um, since we might consider a definition, a kind of conceptual limit or boundary that allows our thought to distinguish between discrete and separate ideas or objects. However that may be, Ares and Hector stem the tide of the Achaeans for a spell, and Diomedes finds himself laboring from the earlier arrow wound. Athena gave him strength, but evidently she did not fully heal him. Athena, finding Diomedes, rebukes him for standing back and goes out of her way to praise Diomedes' father, Tydeus, for being willing to transgress her commands to go against them, going off to war when she forbade him. Diomedes now says that he didn't approach Ares precisely because he was trying to take, take Athena's command seriously. It's an interesting problem when a god can be more pleased by a human being breaking her divinely revealed commands um, than when they are followed. Athena says that she will urge him on with winning force against Ares. Ares sees Diomedes and Athena and makes sure that his spear misses. That is, Diomedes is safe. Conversely, Diomedes, with Athena's help drives the spear into his stomach, into Ares's stomach. So this is much different than stabbing Aphrodite in the wrist, right where the belt is. Ow. A brutal blow. And uh, he ascends up to Olympus to be made fun of by Zeus, uh, just as Aphrodite was. Uh, We now turn to book six. There's much more to say about book five, but I want to keep the concern somewhat focused. So we we can't talk about everything. Maybe we will someday, but not now. So now we turn to book six. And we will focus most of all on Diomedes' conversation with Glaucus before we turn at the end of Book 6 to Hector. The first striking thing about the conversation Diomedes has with the Trojan Glaucus is that Diomedes doesn't know if Glaucus is a god or not. Seemingly, the mist has returned to his eyes. But that that might not be the whole story, inasmuch as he also strangely insists that he is not one who strives to fight with the immortals when he has just attacked two different gods and seemingly gone against the will of another in the form of Apollo. However this may be, he shares a story of a certain Lycurgus who loses out when fighting against the immortals, as if to underscore how important it is not to fight against the gods, generally speaking. And it probably is good general advice not to fight against the gods unless one is godlike themselves. I will have to think more about why Diomedes presents himself this way But following this perplexing speech, Glaucus launches into a speech that is worth looking at very closely. Let's read the first part of Glaucus's reply to Diomedes. High-hearted son of Tydeus, why ask about my birth? Like the generations of leaves, the lives of mortal men. Now the wind scatters the old leaves across the earth. Now the living timber bursts with the new buds and spring comes round again. And so with men. As one generation comes to life, another dies away. But about my birth, if you'd like to learn it well, first to last, though many people know it, here's my story. Whoa, there's a lot to say about this. Um, To begin with, Glaucus seems to be arguing that it is essentially nonsensical for anybody to ask about anybody else's birth, because human beings, when viewed from a cosmic or seasonal standpoint, aren't really distinguishable from each other. This would seem to present undying fame as not really possible and therefore not really desirable. This is a radical attack on a man's sense that what he does matters. When you look at a falling leaf, can you tell if it's falling courageously? Or in a cowardly manner? No, uh, at least I don't I, I've now started to look at leaves in this manner, but I'm afraid to say it's been difficult for me to tell which leaves are cowardly and which ones aren't. Um, so if you are a leaf, you're born, you grow. maybe at least for a moment you feel as if you triumphantly burst forward as new buds. but then we grow old, we fall off the tree, become crunchy, get stepped on, and we are replaced. Um, fit only to be scattered by the wind. By this account, you and I are not important. Can a human being fully reconcile his mind to thinking of himself this way? How should he live if he can't stand out or if the honor he receives can't ultimately make him distinguishable from the many who also live and then die? What Glaucus says after this leafy part of his speech is strange. For in spite of the claim that he seems to have made about how radically unimportant we are, he then does follow Diomedes' request to speak of his birth. To speak of one's familial origins would seem to be to explain why one is different or distinguishable from other human beings. I came from this family, not from that family. Therefore, I'm different. I can be distinguished and distinct from you. Um, So I'll briefly summarize the story that um, Glaucus tells about his origins, um, his sort of lineage. And then I'll offer three plausible interpretations that may or may not fully fit together um, about that speech, but which represent, I think, interesting or serious pathways that we could go down. Uh, Maybe one of you can offer a suggestion yourself uh, for how this speech fits together, how Glaucus's account of the leaves or the generations of man fits together with his willingness to give a pretty detailed and interesting account of his family life, of what makes him distinct from others, or at least his family distinct from others. So we turn to the summary. Glaucus makes it known that his lineage is of divine origin, born of the wily or crafty Sisyphus or the wiliest or craftiest Sisyphus to be as precise as possible. He focuses narration on his grandfather, Bellerophon. Bellerophon was given great beauty by the gods. He was kicked out of Argos because the king's wife was lusting after Bellerophon. Bellerophon spurned her advances. His will was too strong. He would not fall for the seduction. But the wife, feeling insulted at being spurned, Pretends to her husband as if Bellerophon made aggressive advances on her. The king of Argos can't stomach killing Bellerophon directly. In Fagel's translation, it says he at least has some respect, and so he sends Bellerophon to Lycia, where his wife's father lives, Um, and he sends a secret—or not merely lives, but also rules there. It's the king; Uh, he's the king, and a secret message is sent along with Bellerophon with his papers, paperwork, so to speak. Um, And this message is one that Bellerophon does not know about. It's something that he should produce to the other king in order to make a claim about why he should be allowed to stay. Um, But this is a murderous message. There's a secret message that says Bellerophon should be killed. Rather than killing him in direct fashion or immediately trying to kill him with cunning, this king of Lycia chooses a more indirect mode by having Bellerophon battle the Chimera, then the Salimi or Selimi tribesmen, and then the Amazon women, um, he's able to overcome all of these trials, all of these challenges. So not only is Bellerophon uh, handsome and beautiful, but he's also extremely manly, very powerful. And finally, the Lycian king does attempt a cunning ambush um, with the best of the Lycians, but Bellerophon who had followed the signs of the gods throughout his trials, manages to win. Bellerophon is finally rewarded by the Lycian king and given a wife and land. Eventually though, the gods hated Bellerophon and they forced him to wander alone, eating his heart out. Um, And with several family members suffering greatly as well. Um, So Glaucus mentions his father just at the very end of this. Bellerophon again is his grandfather. And he mentions his father's exhortation never to disgrace the generation of your fathers. In other words, Bellerophon's father, Hippolychus, understands their family to be special, to be better, to be superior, um, to be worthy of not being shamed because they only do noble things. Um, so at any rate, yeah, this exhortation is the last thing that accompanies the speech. So with that said, let's turn to three brief interpretations in thinking through how does the leaf part of Glaucus's speech fit in with his account of his divine lineage of his family? Okay, so here's the first possible interpretation of how to put these together. So we could say the story, this detailed claim about who Glaucus's family is, we could say that the story might undermine Glaucus's claim that he believes that humans are like leaves. If or to the extent that Glaucus cares about his origin, cares about his family, um, he would provide or he would be an example of a human mind that is unable to fully hold on to the zoomed out leafy insight of humans being unimportant that was described above. Um, As the scholar I had mentioned before, Seth Bernardetti suggests, Glaucus speaks in superlatives about his past. Sisyphus was the craftiest. The men from Lycia he killed were the best. In other words, by emphasizing such superlatives, Glaucus wants his past to be impressive. He wants uh, he wants Diomedes to think that he's cool. This seems to indicate that he cares about his lineage. That he cares how Diomedes perceives him. Um, he wants Diomedes to think that he's important. So. In that case, then, Glaucus, despite his leaf speech, would have to admit that he cares um, and that his awareness of his care might place demands on him to do something about it. In other words, it might be the case that he wavers between an intellectualized understanding of human life um, in seeing that human life means effectively or ultimately nothing. And so that's on one hand. And on the other hand, a heart-oriented interpretation of the world in which he can't help but care for his family, taking time to learn about its history in detail and making sure that many others know about it. Um, Okay, so that's the first possibility, is that ultimately Glaucus is confused, wavering between a view of human life, which maybe somehow sounds to him coherent or... That makes sense to him. Look, there's all these human beings. They all die. They go away. Do we remember all the old human beings? And then the second half of his speech seems to present an entirely different vision of human life. One in which, well, you know, I kind of care about my family. I don't quite see everybody as leaves. Um, So the first then interpretation is that Glaucus is somehow confused. A different possibility, a second second possibility, is that Glaucus's speech is actually coherent that it does fit together and that he doesn't waver between two contradictory positions. Possible evidence for this claim would come in the form of the capricious character of the gods. At first, they support Bellerophon in a full-throated way and they thwart the various attempts of other human beings to ruin Bellerophon's life. Um, In Argos, the wife wants to ruin him. Then the king wants to ruin him. Then he goes to Lycia. That king tries to ruin him. He overcomes all of the human beings. His life only falls to ruin when the gods will it to be so. In this way, humans comes, human beings come to sight as the playthings of the gods, as leaves whipped by the wind, who don't in any ultimate kind of way deserve what happens to them. How can a human being deserve glory if the gods are the only shapers of human futures, thwarting wills whenever they please? So that's a second interpretation, that perhaps Glaucus's speech ultimately does fit together, that it is coherent, that in the first speech, first part of it, that is, he says human beings are like leaves, they mean nothing. And then the second part of the speech, he justifies that belief by giving an account of how the gods, sometimes it goes well for you, sometimes it goes badly for you, but it's not really up to you. You are a leaf. And then a third possibility, maybe this is a cheekier uh, suggestion, but is that Glaucus has seen Diomedes slaughtering men and fighting gods. He, Glaucus, is wearing gold armor. It's pretty valuable, it could be worth like 100 oxen. Diomedes, who may be more powerful, is wearing bronze armor, perhaps worth only 8 oxen. Could it be the case that Glaucus offers a charming and beguiling story and an effort to survive against a man like Diomedes? Could he be trading his armor out of a desire to live? Even leaves, after all, don't throw themselves off of trees as soon as they are born. They cling to life and seek to extend themselves to their fullest leafy extent, even if that extent is not so large. As Hera notes uh, early in book five, quote, "As long as brilliant Achilles stalked the front, no Trojan would ever venture beyond the Dardan gates. They were so afraid of the man's tremendous spear." now they're fighting far far away from the city, right by your hollow ships, end quote. Which is to say the Trojans were cautious or prudent, knowing that it would be suicide to fight Achilles in the open. They only joined the field because he was off of it. As we noted in an earlier lecture, Priam asks Helen questions, scanning the field, possibly to learn whether or not Achilles was on the field. However this may be, we can say that the desire to survive has been one that has animated the Trojans, and reasonably so. They have no hope of facing Achilles in the open field, so they don't dare to try. Now that he is off the field, Hector is willing to bring the fight to the Trojans. I start here in thinking about Hector in order to make his conversation with Andromache at the end of book six more striking. Hector was directed back into Troy, in order to direct his mother to sacrifice the largest, quote, largest, loveliest robe that you can find throughout the royal halls, a gift that far and away you prize most yourself, end quote. Now, just to follow up this thing on Hecuba, his mother, we can say this, unfortunately, Hecuba only sacrifices a robe that is largest and loveliest, but the phrase doesn't fully repeat. She grabs something that is, quote, richly worked, end quote, but not that is most prized by herself, this is not necessarily decisive for the Trojans losing, but it is striking that in such a crucial moment, Hecuba would seem to prize her dearest robe over the life of her son and perhaps the city itself. whoa um, this is just a close reading aside um, that serves to explain why Hector is off of the battlefield so let's let's just go back to thinking about Hector um, and not about his awful mother when Hector talks to Andromache. She offers a tactical proposition. She says a lot of other things, but it seems to me that she offers a pretty clear and interesting tactical proposition uh, with respect to the war. She says that Hector and the Trojans should come back behind the walls, but that they should all reinforce the weakest part of the walls, the sky and gates, where they have repulsed the forces at least three times before, even when Achilles was on the field. This is something that, um, well, this takes place within the scope of the war, but it takes place outside the scope of the poem. So we haven't seen these attacks, um, as you probably know. Now in her view then, Andromache's view, prudence is the pathway to victory. Don't we want to win the war? Well, let's do what's required to win. Let's just multiply our effectiveness as warriors by standing behind the fortifications at the weakest point where the enemy is most likely to attack. It's worked before. It could work now. And we also know that the Achaean morale is not exactly high across the board at the moment. Maybe they actually could wait the Achaeans out. Um, But here's how Hector responds to this plan. He rejects it for the following reasons. He says, quote, I would die of shame to face the men of Troy and the Trojan women trailing their long robes if I would shrink from battle now coward, nor does my spirit urge me on that way. I've learned it all too well, to stand up bravely, always to fight in the front ranks of Trojan soldiers, winning my father great glory, glory for myself. For in my heart and soul, I also know this well, the day will come when sacred Troy must die. Priam must die, and all his people with him. So, I would propose that there's a kind of contradiction in Hector's thinking. I'm curious what you think about this. The heart of the contradiction would seem to be this. Hector, as he says, would die of shame if he thought that he was seen through the eyes of others as a coward. And yet, he wouldn't openly oppose the Achaeans on the field while Achilles was on it. Which is to say, sometimes Hector is willing to pursue the prudent option Or the safer course. So, what governs his decision on when to stay on the field, vulnerable to Achilles' potential return, or when to retreat? This question will come up several times throughout the poem, so we'll have to watch out for when these moments emerge. Um, Also, to say something that Hector doesn't say, maybe this really is the time to try and route the Achaeans, since Achilles is off the field. Maybe even if one was governed by prudence, this would be the moment to try to rout the Achaeans. But Hector doesn't say that, so that doesn't seem to be what he believes is guiding his actions at the present moment. Um, So if or to the extent that he thinks that he's simply pursuing glory um, or somehow doing the most noble thing, it's not perfectly noble insofar as he wouldn't have undertaken this enterprise without Achilles being off the field. Um, But Pushing against this, or maybe piling on the confusion, we could say that Hector's speech ends with what appears to be a strong willingness to accept that he, his father, and Troy must come to an end. And as he says, like a little bit later, and not in what we quoted, you know, that his wife will become a servant or slave, um, things will be pretty bad. But if, or to the extent that Hector entertains prudential considerations, Isn't he ultimately hoping that he might be able to save himself from an earlier death? And perhaps even he hopes he can win against fate? All right. Well, thank you for joining us. I look forward to uh, to your comments and uh, I look forward to discussing book seven soon. Brian Wilson out.